Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Neil Garfield Show, a presentation sponsored by the Living Lies blog, GTC Honors, LendingLies.com, and The Garfield Firm. Servicing all 50 states and 24 countries with news and analysis about the largest economic crime in human history. This program is for general information only and should not be used as a substitute for legal advice or consultation with a licensed professional. This show is not intended as a solicitation for the engagement of any services. And now, presenting world-renowned author, trial lawyer, CLE lecturer, and court-approved expert witness on securitization of death, Neil Garfield. What is the secret to defending foreclosures? Hi, this is Neil Garfield, and this is Thursday, May 27, 2021. I'm broadcasting live from Duval County, Florida. Some of you know that I am in the final stages of writing the book that will help all homeowners and their lawyers defend foreclosures. It's long overdue. The working title is Keep Your House. I'm presenting tonight some of the concepts in that book. We have a lot to cover, but if we don't finish tonight's topics, you'll be able to get a lot more information when you buy the book, which will be published on Amazon. The bank public relations departments are working overtime. They're churning out articles for the press to print, and they do, all saying the same thing. Don't worry about foreclosures. There's no tidal wave coming. Most of us who are deeply involved with this know that that message is false, but it does give cover to politicians who don't want to lose their donor money from Wall Street. Meanwhile, the number of foreclosures is climbing, and the number of zombie foreclosures is now rising in 33 states. As you might remember, a zombie foreclosure occurs when the property is foreclosed and then abandoned by the parties who foreclosed. Those properties are usually bulldozed. And of course, when the moratoriums finally lift, you are going to see that tidal wave. There is a secret key to defending foreclosures, but it is not a magic bullet. You need to work your case using the key. Tonight's secret word is warranty, something that is not talked about very much. A warranty is a guarantee of the integrity of something and of the maker's responsibility for it, the maker being the person who issued the warranty. So if you buy a toaster and you get a warranty, it means the maker or seller is willing to repair or replace it if it fails. If you get a deed with a warranty, it means the grantor will give you your money back if the deed fails. The deed fails if it turns out the grantor did not have title, even though he gave a warranty deed and warranted or guaranteed that he did have title. But it is not the warranty that gives you title if you get a deed. It's not a warranty that would give you title to a mortgage lien. 
It is the unbroken chain of title that is actually conveyed to you. If you have that, you have title. So if you see a conveyance that says it is transferring title to a property lien, like a mortgage, and it says for value received on it, you might have reason to believe that the grantor must have had title because if he received money, you know, the grantee must have had a reason to pay him. But if the grantor does not have a warranty of title, does not give a warranty of title, there's a reason to question whether there was any unbroken chain and therefore whether there was any transfer at all. Without the chain, there's no title. It's just that simple. In legal documents, there are introductory clauses or allegations that state the facts as the parties agree or facts that are taken as being true even if the other party does not agree. These paragraphs in an agreement typically start off with the words, whereas, in a pleading, the whereas paragraph is simply stated in court as one of the allegations at the beginning of the complaint. So setting the stage is the whereas or the initial jurisdictional type allegations in a complaint. It's in those allegations in the complaint or in that whereas clause that belongs in a document of transfer that the case is made that the claimant is the owner of the claim. In any normal business document that is binding with the, with the right to legal enforcement, the parties make certain representations about their authorization to execute the document, on whose behalf the document is executed, and the owner, the identity of the owner of any property that's the subject of that business document. Such a document would include a mortgage or deed of trust, an assignment, a launch, etc. Absent that information, the subject matter is missing and there is no agreement. There is also no legal effect to anything recited in a legally void document. No legal effect means a court will disregard it. It's not evidence. Of anything. Sometimes the document, like an assignment or a lounge, is executed pursuant to the terms of yet another agreement that is either in writing or is oral or there's some informal understanding, perhaps via email or even text messages between the parties. But in the end, no lawyer would allow his client to sign a document in which the duties, obligations, and rights of his client were not enumerated in such a way that the lawyer could later enforce in court. And the reason the lawyer would be required to quit the engagement rather than give permission to execute the document is that without an express statement or recitation that clearly enumerates the rights, duties, and obligations, those rights, duties, and obligations do not exist. If they're not stated, they don't exist. 
the execution of such a document in most scenarios would not be considered a binding contract or agreement that is subject to legal enforcement. The document would simply be a document with no binding effect before any court of law or equity. Now, of course, additional evidence might support the recitals in the document, and the court would have a choice of then combining all the evidence and declaring the existence of a contract or simply enforcing the uh, the agreement created by the statements or behavior of the parties. But such non-binding documents do exist in the marketplace, especially when parties wish to create an illusion. And since they don't want to be accused of criminal or civil fraud, they refrain from making any express representation that something is true. Instead, it's implied from the rest of the document. If accused of misleading anyone, they can say, well, we never said that. If somebody infers from an assignment of mortgage that is that a legally effective transaction occurred, that's actually the responsibility of the person who's reading to that and coming uh, reading that and coming to the conclusion and not the person who drafted and signed the the document but all of that changes if the document does say or does recite that such a transaction occurred that would be a representation a warranty by the party making that statement. And that would be actionable. Unless, of course, the assignment recited the facts of the transactions, the date, the parties, and the consideration paid, there is no possible way that it can be treated as anything other than a legal nullity. Now, a lot of people will be up in arms that I said that. They'll say, well, how do they do it anyway? Well, they do it anyway because the argument is made and the courts generally accept the idea that if somebody has the original note, then there must have been a transaction. There must have been payment for the mortgage and if there was payment for the mortgage, that must have been payment for the underlying obligation, which is required before you can file any action for enforcement of a mortgage. One of the facts recited would be a representation by the party executing the assignment that the signatory is an authorized person by board resolution to sign and sell that particular mortgage instrument uh, dated, for example, the 5th day of July, 2009, whatever. The recitation would recite a warranty, which are, is our magic word for tonight. 
This gets deep into the weeds. I know. But if you master it, you'll be in a position to defend and it should guide all of your tactics and strategies. The assignor, or asinor, depending upon how you pronounce it, would warrant that it is the owner of the mortgage by virtue of having paid consideration in exchange for ownership of the underlying obligation. So in other words, the asinor would say, I paid for the debt. The word warrant means that the grantor is swearing that he owns the asset being transferred as recited in the document. As the owner of the obligation and owner of the recorded lien, the asinor guarantees that he has full authority to execute the document and transfer the title, the ownership of the recorded lien from himself to whoever the grantee is. And that that ownership is free from any other lien or encumbrance of any agreement in which the mortgage itself was presented as collateral for some other transaction with some third party. So that's the normal way that assignments of mortgage are written. Those are the forms that are used throughout the country. Those are the forms that are used by all lawyers. Those are the forms that are used by all businesses. Those are the forms that are used by all banks. I didn't make this stuff up, by the way. Any lawyer who has practiced transactional law will tell you the same thing. Go check. So it should come as no surprise to anyone that if you bring in a mortgage to a bank when you're looking for a loan and the mortgage is owed to you, the bank will require you to first give them a warranty of ownership if you want to borrow money using that mortgage as collateral. They will then check the chain of title to see whether or not you actually have ownership of that mortgage. But without your warranty, they won't do the deal. In foreclosures, ignore both the law and custom and practice as it is, has existed for centuries, going all the way back to common law England. The bank would also confirm the existence of the mortgage on the public record and confirm with the title owner that there is an obligation and that there are no outstanding defenses to the existence of the mortgage and that they acknowledge and that the, the title owner acknowledges and recognizes that you are, in fact, the current owner of the mortgage and that you are the current person to whom a debt is owed. All of that is what happens every day when mortgages or other obligations are used as collateral for loans to a bank, from a bank. The custom and practice of all banks in all situations has always been to demand such recitals and proof that the obligation was sold through payment of value. I've already told you in many other broadcasts and many articles and my workbooks that no such payment of value has ever occurred. 
But within the context of current foreclosure process, here's the point. There is no recital of a warranty of ownership or authority by anyone mentioned in the, assign- in the assignment. That makes it an unusual document. And that point needs to be raised along with your other tactics and strategies. Nobody says in foreclosure cases where an assignment is presented that the assignor or the assignor was the owner of the underlying obligation or even the mortgage document. They simply say they received an assignment before the current one. In other words, they say nothing. They do not refer to a chain of title. Ordinarily, the rules of pleading would require that. Ordinarily, the rules of documentation would require that. In the context of securitization, they don't do either one. They don't say it in the documents, and they don't say it in their pleading. By leaving it open without a warranty, the banks are purposely including two possibilities. First, that the assignor did own the mortgage and obligation, and second, that it didn't. Both are possible because the document didn't say one way or the other. So it is not technically a fraudulent document, even if it is used in a fraudulent way. It is not a false statement because no statement is made about ownership by either side. Neither the grantor, assignor, nor the grantee, assignee have made any statement about ownership or legal transfer of a mortgage lien with or without the underlying obligation. It's left as a philosophical possibility that in the future the assignment will be considered legal, valid, and enforceable if the facts are produced and accepted into evidence supporting the implied reference to ownership and transfer of ownership of the mortgage and transfer of the underlying obligation. You have to have both. Otherwise, the so-called transfer is a legal nullity under the laws of every state. Keep in mind that any transfer of mortgage is a legal nullity unless there is also a transfer of the underlying obligation. This is, after all, about money. People forget that. If there is no underlying obligation owed to either the assignor or the assignee in an assignment of mortgage, there is no transfer of lien rights, despite anything printed on the face of the document. That warranty or statement required by all banks in all other transactions is a warranty of ownership, and it is as different as the daylight between a quitclaim deed and a warranty deed. In a warranty deed, the grantor warrants that he or she is seized with full title and conveys that title. In a quitclaim deed, the grantor is only saying that if she, he or she has any title, we should consider it conveyed to the grantee. It does not give any warranty that the grantee actually receives anything. And that's what's happening with these assignments of mortgage. That's what's happening with these allonges. 
There's no statement that in an allonge that this is being done pursuant to instructions or authorization from the owner of the underlying obligation. And in a mortgage, there's no uh, assignment of mortgage, there's no statement that the party who is making the assignment actually owns the lien. So absent the express warranty, we don't know if the assignment is a legal transfer of ownership of any mortgage or any obligation. Without the facts supporting such a warranty, we have no way of knowing whether any allonge or endorsement has been authorized by the owner of the obligation. Without a warranty, we don't know the owner of the the identity of the owner. That person or business entity is the sole source of such authority and is the sole source of any warranty of ownership. While notes can be transferred around, they may only be used in commerce with permission or authorization from the owner of the underlying debt. That's the source for such authority. There is nobody else. That permission is often implied, but practically never true in current foreclosure situations. And the reason, as I've described elsewhere, is that there is no creditor. There is nobody after securitization that is carrying your obligation as their asset. In foreclosures, nobody says they are transferring the underlying obligation. And no transaction is ever recited as the date, terms, parties, etc., something that would be automatically rejected by the same banks who are now using such documents to create illusions of implied ownership today. If you go to the pleadings and notices, again, you see no warranties of ownership. There's no allegation that the claimant, plaintiff, owns the title to the a mortgage lien or owns the underlying obligation. If they don't own the underlying obligation, then Article 9, Section 203 prevents them from ever filing for enforcement. The reader is left to infer from the existence of the assignment or endorsement that the ownership or authority has been transferred. But the reverse is equally possible. The telling clue about the lack of warranty in allegations is the failure to recite in any pleading or notice that the claimant is the owner of the underlying obligation. That never happens. By saying nothing and arguing everything, the foreclosure mills win. By failing to challenge this approach aggressively and persistently in a timely manner, Homeowners always lose. If you ask for evidence, all the presumptions fail. We have shown repeatedly, and and that's what happens when you ask for evidence about the unbroken chain of title, you can't get it because each one is required to have consideration and so forth. We have shown repeatedly that securitization players cannot and will not answer or reply to a demand 
or request if you ask for admissible evidence supporting the presumption of the existence of the underlying obligation owed by a homeowner. That's because in securitization, the obligation is extinguished from the records of any party that could have been a creditor. You will get the same result if you ask the company that claims to be a servicer. It turns out that the money paid by homeowners is not deposited into any account owned by the company claiming to be the servicer, which means it is not the servicer. It also turns out that the company claiming to be a servicer does not make any disbursements to any investor or creditor. Those are facts, not theories. The meaning of this is quite clear to any accountant or investment banker, but incredibly unclear to any lawyer or judge who wants to think that they know what is going on but doesn't have a single clue. I personally have seen the light bulb go on above the head of judges who suddenly get it. They are astonished and usually angry for good reason. The company claiming to be a servicer has no accounting records for the receipt or disbursement of funds. So it should not be in court offering any evidence about something about which it had no involvement. Homeowners are distracted by the fact that they execute checks or EFT payments to the name of the company claiming to be the servicer or as the payee on on their payment. But that company never receives it. And nobody ever deposits the payment into a depository account owned by what you thought was a servicer. There is only one conclusion. Any report produced by a company claiming to be a servicer is merely a compilation of data supplied by a third party. That is hearsay in any and every court in the land. And if it is hearsay, it is not admissible as evidence to prove the truth of any matter asserted. That is black-letter law established over thousands of years. Lawyers get confused by the fine nuance presented here by the clever foreclosure lawyers. The report in court is a business record of the company claiming to be a servicer because any printout or report by them is a business record of theirs. Any printout or report that happens at the terminal of any employee of the company is a business record. But it is not a business record that is an exception to the hearsay rule because none of their employees made any entries on any accounting records at or near the time of a transaction in which that company claiming to be a servicer supposedly was engaged in the transaction. They are involved in none of the transactions. So it is not admissible as evidence in the court record, and that means the court may not consider it. It may be a business record, and that is what foreclosure attorneys are counting on. But it is not a business record exception to the hearsay rule. And without qualifying for that exception, there is literally no evidence against the homeowner. Without evidence, the claim for foreclosure fails as it should. That doesn't prove that it was fraudulent. It just makes the claim fail. The reason there is no evidence for the services, testimony, and exhibits 
there's no evidence after the services testimony and exhibits are struck is that there is no person on the planet that's willing to commit perjury and go to jail. There is no debt, and there is nobody who can testify that there is a debt without risking prison. You will never see any assertion in writing and testimony or any recital on a document that says the debt exists on the books of XYZ Company. The reason is very simple. There is no debt. From your perspective, there is. From their perspective, there isn't. The documents offered in foreclosure proceedings are presented through the testimony of a, of a representative of a company claiming to be a servicer. This often is done without any testimony or evidence of the existence of a servicer relationship. That's it for tonight. Thanks for joining. We'll see you next week. The opinions expressed on The Neil Garfield Show are those of its hosts and should not be ascribed to any other persons or entities. For more information about Neil, the blog, or upcoming seminars, please visit livinglies.me. Give us a call at 954-451-1230 or send an email to n-e-i-l-f-g-a-r-f-i-e-l-d at hotmail.com. Thank you for listening to The Neil Garfield Show. If the information has helped you, consider making a donation by visiting livinglies.me.